Good morning, church. New month, new sermon series. I am very excited, but before I jump in, you know I have to tell you, especially because I was gone last week, so I didn't get to tell you last week that I love and appreciate you all so very much. I, I love going on trips. My family and I got to go to California last week, be with the church in Fresno, and then spend some time in LA. But I'll tell you, and I'm being honest, you can ask my wife if this isn't true, my favorite part of a trip, even my favorite part of a vacation, is coming home. I love coming home, and part of the reason I love coming home is to be back with all of you. I love you so very much, and I'm so grateful for who you are and how you are allowing God to use you. This series this month, I, I feel like, is so important, and I've been anticipating this series uh, for a year now and, and waiting for this series because I think this is so incredibly important. And I was trying to think, how do, I, how do I start this series and how do I impress on us the importance, the relevance of, of what we're talking about? And the first thing that came to my mind is these little New Testament Bibles. You, you remember these? Maybe you have some of these. When my my boys were little, we would give them little New Testaments, and, and probably my first Bible was a New Testament. But I, I just wanted to stop and think about sort of how, how ironic maybe these, these Bibles are that just contain the New Testament. Maybe they throw in Psalms and Proverbs along with it, but usually it's just the New Testament. Uh, think, about, think about the fact that most of the Bible is missing from these. Right? Most of the Bible is missing from it. Three quarters of the Bible is missing. And I know it makes it really convenient to slip it in your pocket, but most of the story is missing from these Bibles. Right? Most of the story is missing from these Bibles. Think about if you went into a bookstore, if you still go into bookstores, if you go into a bookstore and you found your favorite book or your favorite story, maybe it's a collection of books that are all in a series and you love this series of books and it's so exciting and wonderful and then you notice that they only carry the last fourth of that story. They, they, they don't carry the, the first three quarters of that story. Or there's a, a novel and the first three quarters of it are just cut out. Why, why, would a, why would anybody cut out the first three quarters of a story? Well, the only two reasons that come to my mind is either one, they think everybody already knows that part of the story. Maybe they think everybody already knows the beginning of the story. Or they think that that part isn't very important. That part isn't very important. That, that beginning stuff, it's all just confusing, and it's complicated, and it's long. I mean, who can get through the first five books? It's just so long and complicated, and it's really not that important. In fact, I've fought this battle of the importance of the first books of the Bible my entire ministry life. I remember the first preaching job that I had in this sweet little congregation in Northeast Arkansas, and there was this sweet man there, loved him to death, wonderful brother, but if he knew that I was going to preach a sermon from the Old Testament, he wouldn't come. And he would tell me that's why he wasn't coming. He said, I don't need to hear anything from the Old Testament. That's that stuff's not important. See, here's the problem. It's the same with any story, isn't it? If you read a story, how you interpret the end of the story, how you understand the end of the story, the impact of the end of the story, what the story is really saying is shaped by the beginning of the story, isn't it? 
Every story that you read, and that's what we believe that the biblical narrative is, is it's this true story of God and what God is up to and what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. And and what you think God has done and what you think God is doing and what you think God will do is shaped by understanding the introduction to the story. That's what Genesis is. Genesis is the introduction to this narrative that culminates in Jesus and who we think Jesus is and what we think Jesus has accomplished. And what we think Jesus will do in the future is shaped by our reading of the introduction to the story. It is shaped by the Eden story. We understand the end in light of the beginning. So that's what this entire series this month is all about, is what we understand about what it is we're doing, who it is we are, What it is we are hoping for is shaped in so many ways by the Eden story. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This story about the Garden of Eden. Because, again, I don't know that everybody knows this story, number one. And it is really important. So I don't want to shame you for having a a New Testament. But we, we just have to understand this isn't the complete story, right? Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land and there was no man to work the ground. Now, in English, those words man and ground don't sound anything alike, right? Man and ground don't don't have any etymological connection. They don't sound alike, but in Hebrew, the connection is very evident. The word man, and we're not talking about man versus woman, we're talking about man as in humanity. The word for man is Adam, sounds like Adam, right? Adam means humanity, it means mankind. There was no humanity. There was no Adam. There was no human. So the word for human, Adam, and the word for ground is Adama. Adam, Adam, and Adama, ground and man. And right from the very beginning, as these two words are introduced side by side, it's evident that there's a very strong connection between humanity and the Ground between Adam, Adam, and Adamab, between humans and the ground. He says in verse 6, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man, the Adam, of dust from the Adama, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, from the very beginning, it's evident that humanity, Adam, and the earth, the ground, the Adamah, are intimately connected. 
We are part of the earth. We are made from the earth. Humans are made from the earth, and humans are made for the earth, right? That's why nothing was the way that it was going to be or the way that it should be, because there wasn't yet a Adam. There wasn't yet humanity to keep it. And so humanity and the ground are intimately connected, but we're not just Adamah, we're not just ground, we're not just earth. God breathes into humanity the breath of life, and he becomes a, this translation says, living creature. In Hebrew, it's nefesh. Some translations may say a living soul, right? A soul. Now again, this is so important, because the Bible tells us in spite of what we, we may have learned from popular culture and the way we use the word soul, a soul isn't something that we have. A soul is something that we are. Humans are a living soul. We are a soul. And we are intimately connected with the ground that we walk on. This humanity that we are, we are living beings. And why are we living beings? Because God breathed into us the breath of life. God is the source and the sustainer of our life. What did, what did Adam, what did humans do to deserve to live? Nothing, right? Nothing. God generously gives humanity this breath of life and makes them a living creature, a living nefesh, a soul. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Pay attention to that wording, a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst or in the middle or in the heart of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So notice, and, and throughout this narrative about Eden, notice that the garden and Eden are not necessarily synonymous. It says that God planted the garden where? In Eden, right? So there's Eden, and then within Eden is the garden, right? So within Eden is the garden. So Eden is this place that is the source, this place where God is, where's the source of life and blessings and abundance. And notice what the text says about the garden. It says that there's all of these trees there, and the trees are not only good for food, but they're also pleasant to the eyes, right? What, what sort of God is this God who places humanity, who places Adam within this garden, this garden of abundance, this garden of generosity? God is this generous, gracious God who's given them all of this all of these trees to eat that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then within the middle or in the midst of or in the heart of this garden, there are two trees. And that's what this story is going to be all about, isn't it? There are two trees. There is the tree of life and there is the tree of the knowledge of good 
and evil. We'll come back to that in a second. But verse 10 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So again, notice, out of Eden came water to water the garden. So the water comes out of Eden and into the garden. And, and, and if you kind of picture, so Eden is this place where water is flowing out, then we probably need to picture Eden and the garden as a, a place that's, that's high, right? Because a place that is geographically high is where water flows from. So on this place, maybe on this hill or on this mountain is Eden and this generous, abundant garden where God has placed humanity and there's this river that flows out of Eden and into the garden and then from there it becomes four rivers. So the, the water doesn't stop at the garden. The life doesn't stop at the garden. The blessings don't stop at the garden. They continue to flow out from there. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold and the gold that is good, and bdellium and onyx stone are there. Now, we're going to talk about four different rivers and this one, we really don't know where this land is or where this river is. People have taken different guesses, but maybe it could be the land of Arabia. And then in verse 13, it says, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that has flowed around the whole land of Cush, which that's in eastern Africa, the land of Ethiopia. So the first one may be Arabia and then Ethiopia, and then verse 14, it says, And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we know where that is. That's in the land of Mesopotamia. So the, the picture that we're getting here, isn't it? That here's this place of Eden. And from Eden flows out this river that's bringing nourishment and blessing and abundance, not only to the garden where God has placed humanity, but also out to the whole world, to the land of Ethiopia and Africa and Arabia and Mesopotamia, and to the whole world, God's blessings are flowing out. And the reason why this is so important is because this is a picture, an image that the biblical authors continue to draw on and to say, this is not only the past, it's also our future hope. We're, we're studying on Sunday mornings from Ezekiel. and Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 9, Ezekiel says, wherever the river goes, this is this vision of future hope, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish, for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And then in verse 12, he says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, picture this in your mind, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be good for food and their leaves for healing. 
So Ezekiel imagines and envisions this future hope. And the way this future hope is described is this river that flows out from the sanctuary to the whole world. And on both sides of the river, there is trees and there is life and there is healing and there is blessing for the whole world. And then at the very end of the Bible... So this, this image begins our Bible, and at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, John pictures the same thing for our future hope. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Again, doesn't that sound like Ezekiel? And doesn't Ezekiel sound like Genesis? This is not only the past, what we had, but it also is the future, what we hope for. Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So again, we, we have this picture of God, a generous, loving, merciful God, the source and the sustainer of what? Life. The source and the sustainer of life, wanting to give life not just to the garden, but to humanity, to all of his creation, and to the whole world. And this is the picture not only that begins our Bible, but the way that our Bible ends as well. Look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, there's a lot of biblical scholarship around the Garden of Eden and around this idea that, that the garden is like a temple. In, in many ways, and, and part of that is because this is a place where God and humans share. A place where God is sharing with Adam, with humanity, but also because of this phrase right here, to work it and keep it. The word work, the Hebrew word there is avad, and the, the word for keep is shamar. And these two words, avad and shamar, outside of this story, they're used to talk about priests. That priests, that Levites in the tabernacle or Levites in the temple would avad and shamar. They would minister and they would guard. They would work and they would keep. So here's this picture that this garden is not only a paradise, a place of blessing and a place of abundance, but also a place of ministry, of priestly service and ministry to God. And do we see what all is transpiring in this garden paradise? That it's a place of life, it's a place of abundance, it's a place of ministry or service, and it's a place of the presence of God. When is the Think about those, maybe memorize those four points, that this is a place of life, abundance, ministry, and the presence of God. And then it says in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, Humanity is given all of these trees 
that are not only good for food, but they're pleasant to the eyes, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're nourishing, there is life, there is abundance, there is ministry, there is the presence of God, and they can eat of every true, every tree, and I would assume that that included the tree of life, right? That as long as they continue to avad and shamar, as long as they continue to work and keep and trust God, they could have access to the tree of life. They could be in this place of life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God. But God says there's one tree, one tree that you're not supposed to eat from. And what's that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? For God to say the only thing that's off limits, the only thing that's off limits to you is this this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And many think, why is that? And what, what are we supposed to gain from that? Or what are we supposed to learn from that? Maybe it's that God was saying the only thing off limits for you is deciding for yourself what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. That belongs to God. You can have everything else, but you cannot decide for yourself what's good and what's bad. And we have this tendency to do that, don't we? To try to decide for ourselves what's good and what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, what's what's the right path to go, what's the wrong path to go, what's going to lead to success, what's going to lead to abundance, what's going to lead to life. And we have this tendency to try to claim that for ourselves. But, But another way we might think about this is, is the fact that most of the time that the Bible uses this idea of knowing good and evil, the, the people who don't know good and evil are children, right? Children don't know good from evil. They don't know right from wrong. They don't know good from bad. Children are, in many ways, immature and naive. And, and there's a, a goodness to that, isn't there? There's an innocence to that, isn't there? Because children have to depend on a parent or someone else to show them what's good and what's bad. And humanity is in this state of childlike dependence where they don't know good from evil. And they have to trust in God. They have to depend on God. But just like us, humanity said, I, I, I want to know for myself. And God wants to protect them from this knowledge. I was trying to think, what's similar to to us? And and maybe we might compare this to something like an R-rated movie. You know what I'm saying? And and we try to protect our children from that knowledge, don't we? Because we know that there's certain things that once you see them, you can't unsee them. Once you hear them, you can't unhear them. Once you learn them, you can't unlearn them. And we know that there's certain knowledge that when you, when you see that and when you hear that, when you experience that, it changes you. It robs you of your innocence. It changes something deep down inside of you. And it steals your innocence away. God wants humanity to stay dependent on him, trusting in him. But the way children do with that kind of knowledge. We say, no, 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 I don't, I don't want you to protect me from that. I want to see it myself. I want to experience it myself. I want to, I want to know it myself. I want to have it myself. 
rather than trusting in their father. And that's the key of this whole text, isn't it? Trust God. That life, life, the presence of God, abundance and life, ministry, and the presence of God have always been given by grace through faith. Humanity didn't have to earn their spot in the garden. God gave it to them by grace. And the way they stayed in the garden was simply to trust God. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And that's always been the story. When we we keep reading in the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, this is exactly the same choice that the children of Israel are given. They kind of have a new garden experience, don't they? They're taken out of slavery, and they're brought to the edge of the promised land, and Moses says, okay, you have two choices, life or death. You have two choices, trust God or don't trust God. Do what he says or don't do what he says. And it's a choice between life and death. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall what? Live. Then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. God says to Israel, he says, I'm going to give you this place of life and abundance and ministry and my presence, right? That's what Canaan was supposed to be, this place of life and abundance and service and the presence of of God. And it's this foreshadow of what God wants to give to all of humanity life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God. And he says, in order to be here and to have this life and this abundance and this ministry and my presence, you have to trust me. You have to trust me and walk in my ways. Be dependent on me. Like little children, be dependent on me. If I say this is off limits, it's off limits. If I say do this, then do this. If I say don't do that, then don't do that. Don't say, well, I want to find out for myself what happens if I do that. Don't. Don't do that. In childlike dependence, trust God. And Moses says, right before the children of Israel go in, life and death, blessings and cursings, it's your choice. And this is this foreshadow of what's to come. Because God wants to give to all of Adam's children life and abundance and ministry and his presence if we will trust him. But that's exactly what John is saying in John's gospel account. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 4. He says about Jesus, in him was life. In Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. This is what Jesus is coming to say. I'm coming so that you can have life, so that you can have abundance. What do you need to do in order to have this life and abundance? What you've always needed to do, trust me. Trust God. Trust Jesus. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me 
has eternal life. He's not coming to judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, this is Eden language, isn't it? This is Eden language. God wants to give to humanity, not just the children of Israel, but all nations of mankind. He wants to give them life, life and abundance and ministry and his own presence if we will trust in Jesus. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the good news, isn't it? This is the good news that what was lost in Eden is found in Jesus. That life and abundance and ministry and the presence of God are found in Jesus. That in Jesus, he has given us this new tree of life, this new river of life. He wants us to have life and abundance. He wants us to have ministry and his presence. We, we might ask, when? When? Are, are we talking about right now, or are we talking about when he returns? And the answer is, yes, it's both, isn't it? We, we have eternal life right now, but we long for the day when all things will be made new. We could say that the giver of life the giver of life has turned a tree of death into a tree of life to restore life to his creation. That's what the, the cross is, isn't it? The cross was a tree of death, but the giver of life has turned the tree of death into a tree of life to restore life to all of his creation. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving us life and abundance, and ministry, and God's very own presence now and in the resurrection, in the life to come, in the new Jerusalem. And trusting Jesus is choosing the tree of life. That's what the whole gospel of John says over and over and over and over again, that trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus is choosing the tree of life. You have the same choice that Adam and Eve had. We have the same choice. Humanity has the same choice. I set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Choose life so that you may live. Choose life. But in order to choose life, in order to choose Jesus, we, we have to allow him to take us back to a childlike dependence, don't we? Where we say, I trust you, Lord. No more pride. No more ego. No more trying to do it on my own. No more trying to be good enough or smart enough. No more trying to grasp that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't have to see it myself. I don't have to experience it myself. I don't have to know it myself. I will simply trust in you and do things your way. Trusting Jesus is choosing the tree of life. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you want the abundant life? Then Jesus says, then believe in me, then trust in me, then follow me. And we do that initially when we're baptized, right? We put our trust in Jesus, 
and, and we gain eternal life, and most of us probably know that. Maybe there's somebody here that hasn't done that yet, put their trust in Jesus. But some of us have forgotten that this is an ongoing thing, that choosing Jesus and trusting in Jesus, choosing the tree of life is an ongoing thing. And some of us really don't. Let's get real. Some of us really don't trust in Jesus. Jesus says, Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on your cheek, turn. Let them slap the other. And we say, that's, that's unreasonable. I, I just can't. I can't accept that. I'm not going to do that. I'd, I'd rather retaliate. I'd rather show people how strong I am. I'd rather show people how big I am. Jesus says, if somebody forces you to go a mile, go with them too. And we say, I just, I just can't live that way. Jesus says that living people, living people, he says this through Paul, doesn't he? That living people, spirit-filled people, that their lives look like love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what living people look like. That's what spirit-filled people look like. That's what people look like when they're eating from the tree of life. And we say, I, I, just, I just don't think I can live like that. I just don't think I can do that or be that way. Jesus is calling us to trust him. Not just trust him for eternal life, for the life after the resurrection. He's calling us to trust him for our present life. Right now, in the present, trust Jesus. Build your house on his solid rock. Trust in him. Do things his way. Stop saying, I want to I get the knowledge for myself. I want to experience it for myself. I want to decide for myself what's right and wrong, good and bad. I think I can figure it out. No more. No more pride. No more trying to blaze our own trail. No more trying to do things our way. No, no more trying to be good enough and smart enough, but simply in childlike faith, faith trusting in Jesus. Because trusting in Jesus is choosing the tree of life. So that's my encouragement this morning, church. Trust Jesus. If you haven't been baptized, trust Jesus and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have been baptized, then, then let's go forward from here every day, trusting in Jesus that his way is better than the world's way. His way is better than our way. His way is better than the way of flesh. Choosing to trust him is choosing the tree of life. And if we can help you to make that choice or recommit yourself to that choice, we're here to help you in any way we can. Now's a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing this song.